Welcome to the GEM series, powered by Rocket Level. On this podcast, we empower entrepreneurs to succeed by setting big goals, executing like a pro, and having a fearless mindset. The GEM series is all about investing in yourself. We're here to share the path to getting what you want out of life by sharing the stories of entrepreneurs who have done this themselves, providing thorough research from our team on what careers and habits are yielding the best results, and discussing the mindset it takes to overcome the obstacles that all future entrepreneurs will face. Investing in yourself starts with putting in the work every single day, and this podcast is here to help you do exactly that. My name is Blake Chapman. I'm the Vice President of the Ambassador Program here at Rocket Level, and I am thrilled to be your host for the GEM Series. Hello, and welcome to today's GEM Series. I am uh, personally overjoyed to welcome our guest, Steve Hoffman, also known as Captain Hoff. Uh, just to give a little bit of background, Steve is the chairman and CEO of Founderspace, a global innovation hub for entrepreneurs, corporations, and investors with over 50 partners in 22 countries. Steve is also a venture investor, founder of three venture-backed and two bootstrap startups, and he is an author of several award-winning books, including Make Elephants Fly, Survive, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Forces. And in addition to all of this, He's actually also worked as a TV development executive and founded several startups in the area of games and entertainment. Uh, Steve has done so much and done all of it really, really well. So excited to have you on, Steve. Captain Hoff, uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Blake, it's fantastic to be here. I'm super excited to be on the show and to talk to you. And today's great. I'm doing great. Wonderful. Wonderful. I, I, I always like to I always like to make sure. <laughs> so, Steve, you know, you've, you've covered so much ground in, uh, in your career. And for those that don't know you, could you just share a little bit about yourself with our audience? Sure. So my main role is working with entrepreneurs. I do that globally. So I work all over the world with entrepreneurs, helping them launch their companies. I bring a lot of startups from overseas into the United States. I also take startups in the United States and launch them here and then bring them overseas. So I'm traveling like 70% of the time. I was wow. just in Europe for a month and I looked at a hundred startups. So a hundred startups. And out of those hundred, I found one that I thought was going to break through. So this is usually wow. the odds out there. It's like, it's like one out of a hundred, you find them and they're a gem. And then, then I am now helping them enter the U.S. market. And I'm going back to Europe in a month. So I'll be back there in a month. Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, I, I talk to, I get to talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and something that I always see is a kind of a common thread is I think most people would listen to your schedule and say, how do you find time to, to sleep, Steve? You know, you're, well, I <laughs> you're make time to off. sleep. I make time to sleep, but I do want, <laughs> I, I do love traveling. I love meeting entrepreneurs. I, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who I meet here, uh, but it's really great to give people who don't have direct access because there are a lot of amazing startups out there Absolutely. that aren't in Silicon Valley. So often they're overlooked and giving them a chance to have the same opportunities is kind of, that's what Founderspace does. And that's been your mission for yes. the last several years. Wonderful. And let's bring it back a little bit further. I'd love to know, uh, you know, where did all of this begin for you? You know, what was, what was growing up? Like, have you always had an entrepreneurial mindset or a creative mindset? Well, I've always had a creative mindset. So when I was young, I was completely into two things. Number one, I was into games. 
So like a lot of guys, I was into games, but I was into all type of games, role-playing games, board games, computer games, video games, you name it. If it was a game, I was in it. I created over a hundred board games uh, when I was a kid. I was just massively like always developing them and testing them out on my friends. And later in my life, I became a game designer, then a game producer. And I have about 50 different game titles out there right now that I've produced or designed. So games have always been a big part of my life. The other part was films. So I actually had my own little movie studio. I made movies constantly from the time I was in grade school all the way through high school. So I have a huge number of movies, animations, live action, everything. And I sort of combined my talents. So I, I have a, an engineering mind, which comes from my father. He was an engineer. He's actually a rocket scientist. And from my mom, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he was an MIT trained rocket scientist. He actually trained some of the early astronauts. They were his students. And, and my mom, my mom is an artist. So freewheeling, free thinking artist. And so I have both those DNA. Um, and then in my career, I've really straddled entertainment and technology. So I've done a lot in, in both areas. Now I'm an investor across all technology segments, but the, all the startups I launched were really entertainment technology startups. That's incredible. And uh, oh my gosh, I feel like if somebody would went to a place where they could just create a baby and they said, hey, uh, these are the ideal genes I'm looking for. That's what I would choose is something along the lines of MIT rocket scientist and uh, extreme artist. That's uh, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> well, you don't um, know what other genes I got. Those aren't as perfect. <laughs> it's, put it this way. It sounds good on paper. Wait till you meet yeah. me. <laughs> hey, I, you seem you seem great so far. I've, uh, I've I'm already enjoying your charisma and uh, and attitude in this. It's uh, it's great to meet somebody smiling and, and enjoying life. Um, something that I, uh, you know, when I was looking about up, a bit more about you. Something that I found that I I love was uh, Gazillionaire. So you you have a, a Gazillionaire fan over here. Uh, oh, that... <laughs> thank you. you. You played it. You got into it. Yeah. I well, I, I watched through the demos and I I started uh, figuring out how to play it um, because I was I watched through all the YouTube tutorials and things like that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. People find I it super trade super... with aliens and <laughs> people find it super addictive. So it's yes, it's. Actually, Gazillionaire was my first company. So the first time I launched a company, I actually, you know, I went to undergrad in electrical computer engineering because my father was like, son, computers are going to change the world. So I, I yeah. said, oh, I have to study <laughs> computers. I Then I went back to film. I went to graduate school in film and television at USC. I graduated USC, worked in the film industry for a while, kind of worked my way up to TV development exec. Then I got an opportunity to go to Japan and head up projects, uh, game projects for them. I, one of them was with Michael oh Jackson, gosh. a really amazing what? project. With, yeah, it was back in the old days, Michael what, Jackson. What was that? What was that? That's so it, cool. It was called the AS1. It was a simulation ride out of Sega of Japan uh, for Las Vegas. And Michael Jackson was a star. He was your, you know. It was a That's good guy. Most so people cool. don't even know that exists, but we did it. It was big back then. And then uh, I came back to my home territory, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Bay Area. And I wanted to start a, my own game company. Didn't want to work for another game company. So I launched a company called Lava Mind. And I wanted to do games that my real mission was to do games that were good for society. 
So I wanted to do games that not only were completely, because I'm a gamer, were completely addictive and you you know, you just had to play more, but also, but also uh, games that taught people something, but you didn't realize you were learning something. So my first endeavor, my first game I ever made was called Gazillionaire. And of course the goal was to be a gazillionaire, which is ironic because I didn't know that today I would be, you know, my main job is teaching entrepreneurs and hopefully turning them into gazillionaires. So I'm still doing the same thing I started out doing, trying to make gazillionaires. But gazillionaire became really popular. Uh, It got picked up by the largest game publisher in the world at the time, the PC game publisher, which was Spectrum Holobyte Microprose. They did Civilization and Star Trek and all those those early games when they were first launched. And uh, they put it out there worldwide. And it was just a game. It wasn't for education. So it was just people played it for fun. It was really yeah. popular. And then schools started to pick it up and universities and they started to oh put it gosh. in. And, you know, hundreds of schools and universities actually still use the game today, even though it's old. Wow. <laughs> and, it's, and then we I kept the rights to the game. So we uh, put it up on Steam. So now it's available for everybody. And that was my first entrepreneur. It was a real risk. Like we had to literally you know, I just sunk my life savings into that game all my time. I was betting on it. And fortunately, it paid off. Well, take me to that mindset, because that's a pretty big decision, right? Uh, You know, going from typically working for other people, what, I guess, what pushed you over the edge to where you're like, you know what, I have to see out my own vision and and execute uh, and and make something actually, it was pretty simple, see this through. Yeah. You know, I was in a big Japanese company working in Tokyo. It was great, but I had the itch. Like I saw I could do this myself. There's no reason I have to sit here uh, working for this big corporation. So I decided, but I can't do it in Japan. I'm not Japanese. You know, my Japanese language abilities were rudimentary. I could get by, but you know, it's another thing running a business in Japan with all the bureaucracy. I said, where should I do this? I should just go back to San Francisco. Something's happening. It was kind of the time. Things were happening. So I I went there and I literally, because I could code, just started coding it. So I started coding the whole game myself. Uh, I also did a lot of the artwork, not all the artwork, but I I drew and did the artwork because my mom was an artist. So I I had uh, enough skills and you'll see like the artwork is kind of crazy and zany. I love the characters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people, people do. So that was the thing. I was really, uh, then, you know, in the old days, literally you couldn't put a game on the internet very easily because there were no real web browsers. They had Mosaic, but it was really crude. Like it was only used by kind of research scientists at the time. But there was a thing called bulletin boards where all the geeks hung out. So I took the game and I uploaded a a limited version to the bulletin boards where the gamer geeks hung out. They started downloading it. And literally my first sale came from none other than Lord Gek. Lord Gek. You don't know him, but I actually, he was in the Bay Area, so I invited him to my house for dinner because he sent me a check over the mail, and I sent him, and I said, oh, come to my house, and I'll give you a stack of floppy disks, <laughs> and so he came there, <laughs> we had dinner, I handed him the floppy disks, and Lord Geck, this gamer geek, went home with the first copy of Gazillionaire, but, oh you know, after gosh. that, after that, um, that the largest PC game publisher, their QA department, their testers, there's quality assurance who test the games. They got a whole, they downloaded the game and they got hooked. And that's what gave me the entree to publish it. Wow. 
that's that's pretty amazing and it's got to feel just like so rewarding that first time you meet because you remember lord geck to this day right that first person that uh you know went came over and bought the game and i uh no i just i love that story so and much he looks and I, exactly like you would imagine a lord geck to look <laughs> so he's a chubby guy like a gamer guy with a goatee you know the whole the whole works that's honestly that's perfect though that's exactly who you want you know kickstarting this thing and yes uh, and that's when yeah. you know you have a business when you just put it up there so now i work with entrepreneurs and they're like you know what would you do to start a company today like because i work with a lot of companies many of them that go public or become big and get acquired sure yeah and if, and if you have that dream what would you do well the first thing is don't do games. It's a tough business. Like when I entered games, there weren't a lot of indie developers. Like it was much smaller. So it's easier for me to break in. Today, like anybody can upload a game. I mean, if you're passionate about games, do it. Like if you really believe you can make the best game in the world, do it. But if you're just doing it to be an entrepreneur, there are, there are a lot of other opportunities out there that are less crowded uh, where you can make a much bigger impact. So this is what I tell entrepreneurs. Don't build your product. Don't do anything like the first thing you need to do is pick an area you're passionate about, whatever that is. Like if it's sustainability, you want to make fishing more sustainable, like so they don't have all the spy catch and, you know, sure. yeah. solve the problems of fishing. Or you want to change the restaurant business. Maybe you grew up in the restaurant business and you see an opportunity to transform it with technology. If you what the first thing you do is don't just think of some idea that you think is good and then start building it because that almost always fails. The first thing you should do if you're really smart is don't build anything. Go out there and hunt for demand. Demand. It's because what I've learned and through my own companies and working with all these entrepreneurs around the world is you can never create demand. And what do I mean by this? People have this mythology, like Steve Jobs. They think, oh, Steve Jobs envisioned the future. He created it. The market was, you know, and then he created all the demand for the, the iPhone uh, or the, and, and before it, the iPod. Honestly, he didn't create the demand. Even the Mac, he didn't create the demand. The demand was already there. Because if you looked at the time, Steve Jobs was really smart. Like before he made Apple, you know, before Apple launched, people were already buying these home PC kits, Commodore and all these other. It was a growing market. It was a market that was growing like crazy. He just hopped on that market and made the next iteration of a much better product. Same with the iPod. There were all these MP3 players already on the market. They were all out there. He just saw that demand, got on board, made the next. You can, no matter how brilliant you are, you cannot make somebody buy something that they don't think they need mm -hmm. <laughs> or want. Yeah, that's so, exactly right. You know, I have entrepreneurs. And, and I actually did this myself in one of my startups, so I, I, I know what it's like, who spend a year making an incredible product, like incredible. It's, it's bugless, beautiful UI, you know, sure. integration with everything else. And people look at it and go, oh, that's nice. You know, when you hear that's nice, that's not good. <laughs> it's the kiss of death. Like yeah. nobody goes after nice products. You know, you download apps on your phone all the time. Sure. And you go, oh, that's nice. A week later, delete. <laughs> like, mm -hmm, I don't, exactly. You know, I'm not, or, or it gets lost on your phone and you never look at it again. Those nice, it's only the, the apps that you're like, oh my God, like I, I need this. I need, or I, this is amazing. Like I have to use this. Those are the apps that resonate. So I tell people, you know, the real job of an entrepreneur is not to think of a brilliant idea. The real job sure. of smart entrepreneurs is to 
go into the world like an oil wildcatter and start sinking wells. Like you don't know where the demand is, but if you hit the demand, you'll know it because it's a gusher. Like, you know, when there's pent up demand that isn't being met by the marketplace, like people aren't being met and you, you're the one who hits it. Boom. Like a lot of entrepreneurs ask me, like, is my, you know, what do you think of my business? Is it doing well? And I'm like, the demand will tell you, like, like if, the, if you're going that out is, there and talk, yes. talking to a hundred potential customers and they are clamoring for your product, you know, they will do anything to get it. You've hit a gusher. If they are telling you that's nice. Well, <laughs> game then over. You. You, yeah. You're going to have to try something else. And that is yeah. such incredible advice. You know, it reminded me of a story that I read recently uh, where it's actually a McDonald's marketing study or something of that effect. And they said that they noticed a few years back that all of a sudden their milkshake sales went down significantly. And they're like, what on earth is going on? Um, and they had changed a couple of things like the machine, I think, changed. I think they might have changed the, the recipe slightly, um, but they kept going and going and going. And there, there are people that were hired to stand right by McDonald's, by the drive through. And if somebody ordered a milkshake, they'd ask them what do you get out of this milkshake? And the thing that they found was that the reason there was a demand and that it had dropped is not because there are just suddenly fewer people that wanted milkshakes. It's because the peak hours were from roughly 4 a.m. to 8 in the morning. And what people wanted was the milkshake wasn't as viscous because most of the people getting them were on a long commute to go to work. Um, and they said, a banana doesn't do it for me. I eat that too fast. A bagel is kind of tricky, but a thick McDonald's milkshake was what I needed. So they adjusted it and they made sure that everything was available at those hours. And then all of a sudden they were booming, selling milkshakes again. And, ah, uh, see, yeah, yeah. when is even timing makes a difference. It, it was timing too, you know? And, uh, yes. when you tell me that, I, I just, I just think it's just so essential to realize that, you know, if the demand You have to know about the market. You have to go deep on the market. And too many entrepreneurs think the, the big idea, the light bulb moment, that's it. That light bulb moment is only in your head. What you need to find out is what's in the real world. Like great entrepreneurs, the greatest entrepreneurs out there usually didn't even invent the products they become famous for. Like Elon Musk. Like he didn't start Tesla. He wasn't the founder of Tesla. No, <laughs> Most yeah. people don't know this, but it's two yeah. other guys and they're kind of pissed off that he took all the credit, you know, took over the company and took the credit. You know, <laughs> Kalanick, who found, who supposedly founded Uber, wasn't really the founder of Uber. There was another guy who was, who was working on it long before he brought Kalanick in. Kalanick was an angel investor and then he, you know, became the face of Uber until he screwed up. But you know, you look over and over and over again, the really smart entrepreneurs don't feel like they have to come up with the idea and they don't even feel like they have to build the idea. They just have to identify the demand. This is what they do. They identify the demand and at the same time they're looking for demand. They are assembling an amazing team to actually execute on it, to figure it out. That amazing team is because you can find, you can have the best idea in the world. You can identify, you know, a gusher of demand, but if you don't have a team to execute on it, again, you'll drop the ball and somebody else will run with it because there's plenty of competition out there. There's yeah. plenty of people looking at the market at the same time you are, somebody's going to figure it out or they're going to see what you're doing and they'll just pass you up. So getting that, you know, I usually say when you start a company, uh, spend 80% of your time upfront. 
looking for the right team members. Because if you get on the right team members, magic happens. Like literally magic happens. It's, you, you, nobody's good at everything. Like we're, you, you, and even if you were brilliant, you're a polymath. You could do absolutely every job in the company. You don't mm-hmm. have time. Like no, <laughs> you just don't simply, have time. Yeah, it won't happen. So getting those early, early people on right now is the most important thing you can do. And also then you can go on a journey together and search for the demand. So I tell people, don't start companies, wait for an idea to start a company. In fact, it's better. Your chance is higher if you don't have any idea or if you have 20 ideas, because then you're not wed to some idea that may not work. So many people, the biggest reason I see entrepreneurs fail is they stick with the same idea too long. Not because they're not... Because entrepreneurs, it's not that they lack stamina or fortitude or grit. Mm-hmm. That's sure. not why they fail. Because just by being an entrepreneur, usually you have those things. Like you're going to do this. But the mistake you make is that you have so much grit uh, that you think, I'm going to make this idea work. When in the real world, there's some disconnection to the real world that you don't see. And this idea will not work. And look, if you're traveling in the wrong direction, it doesn't matter how fast you run, how hard you try, you're going in the wrong direction. Finding the team and the direction are the things that really make smart, uh, smart entrepreneurs successful. Absolutely. I think operating from a place of an abundance mindset and realizing that if you have an idea now, you're going to have an idea. You might have hundreds of ideas a day and, and you know, not exactly. Be, not and if you don't have long. any... And if you don't have any ideas, go into the world. The yeah. ideas are sitting there waiting for somebody to execute on. People will tell you what the, they'll show you by like you, you go into the, if you're in the restaurant business, find out, go embed your, you and your team, your great team, embed yourself in restaurants, fly on the wall, watch people, ask them questions. Where's the chef having trouble? Where's the owner having trouble? What headaches are they causing? What things do the customers want that they aren't getting? All of those are potential opportunities. All of those are the type of ideas that can can actually birth, you know, many new businesses. And the beautiful thing about the world today is that technology is evolving. That means there every time we have an advance in technology, which we literally have one every day now because we have billions of people on the internet innovating, creating stuff, you know, putting stuff out there. Every day there's a new opportunity for some entrepreneurs. Some are small, some are enormous, like bigger than, you know, maybe Google. You we don't know, right? They're huge, but it's up to you to go out and start figuring out where those are. So was this a mindset that you adopted in the when you first went out on your own into the gazillionaire? I think that's Lava Mind, right? That era. Yes. Um and or no, did you have to I discover that to- along the way? When I went to Gazillionaire, I did it the other. I did the way I told you not to. I had my brilliant idea, and I went out there and put all my <laughs> bets on that, that one horse, and I hope it crossed the finish line. Luckily, it did, you know. Uh, but I'm telling you, that's a long shot bet as opposed to a better way of doing it. And this is what I learned working with, you know, doing. I did three venture funded startups and two bootstrap startups in my past. So I've done. A share of my own companies. And then I also learn every single time I work with a really smart entrepreneur and watch what they're doing and see, oh yeah, this, these are the patterns that work. You know, and I put all these in my book, Surviving a Startup, because I really want to help startup founders. I mean, how you start is so important because most, you know, the majority of startups fail. It's just a Absolutely. fact. Like yeah. the odds are against you. You're, you know, you're probably going to fail. So what can you do? What smart decisions can you make every step along the way that will give you maximize your chance? Now there's still chance in there. You can't take it 
you can't take chance out of the equation. Sure, sure. And you know, something that I think about too, and has stood out to me, I've done, gosh, I think about 19 of these uh, interviews with all kinds of different people. And it seems like curiosity is a lot of times what fuels being able to get to the next stage. And curiosity means genuinely wanting to know uh, somebody else's perspective or maybe an answer to a problem or anything like that. You're absolutely right. Curiosity is what curious people ask a lot of questions. Curious people go to places where other people don't. How do you find these great ideas like that are sitting out there waiting to be executed? You don't find it by just sitting in front of your computer trying to dream up something. You find it by, by going out into the world, engaging people. Really, the questions you ask are more... The problem with most entrepreneurs, they get the light bulb goes off, they think their idea is brilliant, and then they go into sales mode. They, they're go, they evangelizing. They want to convince people that their idea is great. That's not your job as an entrepreneur. Your job is, if it's great, you'll know it because they'll be banging yeah. down your door to get it. Your job is to go into the world and figure out where, uh, what they are thinking, what's in their head, what are the stumbling blocks in their life? How can you change those things because when you change things that really impact people you make a big impact now that's such such great advice um what are some of the do you have any kind of abstract examples of ways that you've gone out and sourced information in the past or any tips that might be uh useful for people that are doing that so i have a lot of tips so when you think of a business uh don't just think so a lot of people think they'll have a great idea and they'll put it up there on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Yeah. So it might be a new gadget or whatever it is that, you know, new invention. Those, again, Indiegogo is a great way for one and, and Kickstarter for one reason, because you can do it without creating the product. You can create just a video. That was the brilliance of those platforms, right? They're saying, absolutely, you just create a video and you can get people to pre-order and we can fund this. Well, a lot of those products do quite well. You can see they raise millions of dollars. But mm-hmm. a lot of those same products that raise millions of dollars shoot up, like in sales. And then a year later, they shoot back down. Why? Well, because uh, some per- you know, 20 people in Shenzhen, China, saw that on Kickstarter and copied it and put it out there for low. <laughs> and at that, a low yeah. price. And at that point, you're just competing on margin and you're competing on their home turf because they run the factories. Mm, yeah. They have all the relationships. They can always underproduce you in price. So you have to think beyond just demand. Like this is, this is where it gets really uh, tricky for entrepreneurs. It's not enough to just have a great idea. It's not enough to just have proof that people will buy my product. But what are the businesses that become really big? Because there are a lot of businesses out there that where you can make some good money. Yeah. But they're not going to become the next Google, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft. Sure. They're just never going to become that. What is the distinguishing factor? This is what I tell entrepreneurs. You need to go deep on the business model. So first of all, if somebody buys your product just once and then disappears, goes off into the ether and you don't have any more relationship with them, that is a really tough model. Because Mm -hmm. your biggest expense in running a company, your biggest number one expense, number one is usually the people. Number two is customer acquisition. So let's say you make this great gadget. You have all these sales on on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Like you make a couple million bucks, and then and then 
people stop coming like to buy your product. You now you need to advertise. Well, every time you need to advertise, it costs a lot of money to acquire, to acquire a new customer. You know, most click throughs don't even convert to buying and the few that do. So the customer acquisition cost is really high. And then the customer goes away and you have to go out and buy another and another that erodes your profit margins. Add on top of this competition, and you get killed. You get into a business that's really low margin, really high customer acquisition, very, very tough to grow. Like you just don't have the capital to grow. Sure. So, yeah. so I tell entrepreneurs, what you need to do, first of all, whenever you get a customer, never let that customer go. Never let that customer go. If you can't keep that customer for a long period of time, it's going to be really tough to grow your business. Gosh. Number two, so when true. you have that customer, when you have that customer, continually provide that customer with value. The more value you give that customer over their lifetime with you, the more they will stick with you and the more revenue you can earn. So it's an ongoing recurring revenue by constantly focusing on increasing the value of the engagement with the of between your product or service and that customer. These are the businesses that go, and you can look across every major business out there in almost all of them, especially in the technology space, work this way. Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, it doesn't matter what they are. You, the customer is engaging, and every time the customer is engaging, uh, that company is extracting a little bit of money from them, like whether it's ad revenue from Facebook or others, or whether it's transaction revenue from Amazon, all of these, whether it's B2B, Salesforce.com, they all do this. Then the next thing they do is you don't want other people poaching your customers. You don't want them to say, hey, come over to our service. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll do it at half the price because we can, uh, because they don't care if they cut your margins. They just want to gain market share. But you want to lock them in. You want to keep your margins. How do you do that? Well, uh, one of the keys, uh, and it's the most important key, actually, is that you need to think not of selling a product or service. That's not enough in today's world. You need to create an ecosystem, an ecosystem where the more the customer engages with you, the more value they receive in return. And, and at the same time, the more value they give to the ecosystem. So let me give a super simple example that everybody will understand. So we all know Salesforce, you know, that's CRM for big businesses. So when a customer, Salesforce is no longer the cheapest platform out there. They, you know, they were the sure. first, but they're not yeah. the cheapest. They are not the most user-friendly. They are clunky. They are old. They are dated. They are not the most flexible or versatile. They, and they don't have all, a monopoly on all the features. So why do people stick with Salesforce? And why do people go to Salesforce? Well, there's a reason. Salesforce isn't just Salesforce. They open Salesforce up to all these third-party developers who create all these modules for Salesforce, some of which are incredibly unique and valuable. And because they were first, they're leveraging their first mover advantage in creating a marketplace. So they were the first ones to get developers on their platform for a CRM. And then these developers in turn got access to their customers. The developers added value to the customers. Of course, the custom, more customers that they attract, the more developers join their platform. And the more developers that join their platform, the more customers they can attract and the more customers they can retain because all these other platforms, the developers don't want to develop for some new platform. Sure. It may you know, be cheaper, have a better UI, have other things that to its advantage. 
but there's no customers there. It's brand new. If they're going to invest their time, they're going to go where all the customers are. The ecosystem is what makes Salesforce Salesforce. Like that's why they're this huge multi-billion dollar company. Amazon, same ecosystem, buyers and sellers, you know, and they're all contributing. You know, the buyers are competing on price and product quality and all these different things. And the, and the, no, the sellers are competing on price and product quality and all those things. And the buyers are going into the system, reviewing the products, reviewing the sellers, creating a more valuable system for even more buyers. So that's why we use Amazon. And then Amazon, Jeff Bezos, super smart guy constantly increasing value to the customers. He never stops, right? How can I cut this, the shipping times down? You know, yes. he was the first one to offer free shipping. He was, you know, a pioneer in making returns as simple as possible, even though it cost him money. All these things were very forward thinking because they were building the ecosystem and locking customers into the platform. Like we can leave, we can shop anywhere we want. Why do we do Amazon? Exactly for the reasons I just laid out. It was about ecosystem. You look at Facebook, you look at Microsoft, you look at Apple, you look at any any of the players out there that are dominant, they do these things. And this is what I want entrepreneurs to understand. You know, the steps to building a great business. You know, how do you build Absolutely. like a great, you know, how do you start? How do you build a great small to medium sized business? And then if you want to take it and build a huge business, what do you need to do? And are these some of the things that are focused on in uh, surviving a startup? Absolutely. I go through them all because I learned them, some of them the easy way, some of them the hard way, but I learned these over time and I feel they're really uh, critical uh, for entrepreneurs to know. I also go into things like how do you fundraise? Like what, mm, what is the I psychology see. of investors? You know, what, what do they, what makes an investor say yes? And what, what do you need to show them and how should you speak to them? All really important things when you're an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And who is surviving a startup for in general? Because I know there's entrepreneurs, but uh, yeah, who, who who do you think it, it could anybody read it and so get something? It can from be it? for any any type of entrepreneur. You can be running a small business, a big business, a tech business. You know, the rules, a lot of the rules are the same. So the rules around how you engage with customers, how you how you you know develop products, how you innovate on your business. I don't care. If you are a solopreneur yes. out there, you know, selling something on the web or you run a family store, you know, in your local downtown, or you're the next big uh, Silicon Valley, you want to be the next big Silicon Valley Titan. Uh, the basic business rules are the same. And you, even if you're a small business, you can increase your revenue dramatically by innovating, by thinking about your business differently than your competitors, by looking at the people around you, by engaging with your customers. You know, you can run a stationary store and create the mo coolest, most, you know, most innovative stationary store in the world and actually, you know, double, triple your revenue by taking fundamental principles and actually putting them into action instead of just, oh, I'm going to run a store like everybody else. And, you know, a lot of our audience is people that are either actively uh, pursuing entrepreneurship or they've had a dream of, of going after their passion for a long time. And I just think it'd be so essential for them to read through even just these short snippets that you've given. I'm like, everybody should be taking notes right now. Uh, what motivated you to want to even write this book? I mean, writing a book is a feat in itself, you know. Uh, it, yeah. It's a lot of work. 
So it took a lot of work uh, to write it. it. Took a lot of work to find a publisher. You know, Harper Collins is a publisher. It's just a long process sure. to go through writing a book. But I had accumulated all this knowledge over the years, and I was teaching entrepreneurs. I'm teaching them through videos. I'm teaching them in person. But I thought I could reach a lot more people through a book, and it also gave me a chance to really go deep on these ideas, articulate them, and put them down in a very structured way. So for I felt it was it was. It was some, it was time I did this. That's why I wrote the book. And, you know, I've written a couple other books. I wrote Make Elephants Fly, which is all about the process of innovation. You know, how do you come up with that big idea? How do you go through that process? And then the five forces, which is for me, a personal passion. It's all about how technology is going to change our future. Like what are the latest technologies in development in labs around the world and how, you know, brain computer interfaces, gene editing technologies, technologies that we're using to get to Mars and the moon. How are these technologies going to impact our lives and really change the business landscape? Absolutely incredible. Um, Steve, I just want to kind of comment. I mean, you just radiate positivity and Oh. I, uh, I I really really enjoy uh, just getting to getting to chat with people that that are able to able to do that um, and and have the kind of charisma that you have. Um, where does this yeah where does this mindset have you ever been in a position where you've ever like wanted to give up on something that you're doing and how do you listen to your intuition about uh, what you're working on right now when things get tough? I'm human, so like all humans, I have my down moments, and especially when I was doing early startups and I didn't know as much as I know now and I was making mistakes, there was a moment in every startup that I've ever had where I was literally flat on the floor and I felt like I couldn't get up. I felt like I couldn't get up. I was too exhausted. It was like, yeah. I can't go through it again. I remember one time when I was fundraising for VCs, I spent literally a month and a half engaging with a venture firm going through all the steps and all the hurdles they put me through. You know, they wanted me to meet with this partner. They wanted me to meet with that partner. They wanted Absolutely. to do diligence. They wanted to come in and do endless requests. I finally got a chance to pitch to the entire partnership, like the whole partnership. And I pitched and they said, no, <laughs> they said, no, brutal. I was just like, yeah, look, I, another, I, how many times can I do this? Like I spent so much time and energy on that. And you know, you invest your hopes and your dreams, but you know, as an entrepreneur, if you don't get off the floor, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like being hit with a knockout punch. If you're going to, you know, you're on the ground, you can either lay there or you can get up. And so I got up, but it was really, really, really hard. And I've had a lot of different situations like that. I've had issues with, you know, the founding partners, you know, where we had different visions for where the company should go. And, you know, it didn't end well. We had to like separate our ways. Those were very, very uh, tough times. Uh, and so I empathize with entrepreneurs. I know what you're going through. I've been there. <laughs> and, you know, not every venture I tried works out. I also tell entrepreneurs, don't worry about it. Like, don't beat yourself up. Like certain things just don't work in the world. And Absolutely. the last thing, if you're going to be a great entrepreneur is you want to dwell on that. You want to analyze it. You want to figure out like, where did I make strategic uh, decisions that weren't as smart as I could have been? And in the future, what decisions would I make looking in hindsight? And then you need to move on. You literally need to move on. And keep going live and uh live and let go a little you know yeah. and 
you know, and there's a lot of stress, like an entrepreneurship is, is a roller coaster ride. There are moments when you're just completely stressed out. You need to learn to control that stress. So I'm a high energy guy, passionate guy. I also feel stress intensely. So I had to spend a lot of time training myself to let, uh, to, to let, to, to calm myself down so I didn't overreact to situations so that I could deal with them in, like you see now, in a more positive, constructive way, rather than uh, a way a lot of us do is getting sucked into the wormhole, like sucked sure, into the black sure. hole of whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, sometimes taking three steps backwards and looking at the bigger picture can be helpful. I, uh, you know, I know that so many people uh, that listen to this love mindfulness practices and things like that. Are there anything that you do to kind of help you out when you're There's, in the wormhole? Yeah, so mindfulness practices are wonderful. And I encourage everybody to do them. One thing I like to do is whenever you feel stressed, and it can be about little things during the day, even little things can you know create a lot of stress, a disproportionate amount. Remember, whatever's happening right now, will I remember this? Will I even remember that this happened in three months? Well, I'll tell you, most of the little things in your day that cause you stress, you won't even remember in three months, let alone a year let alone three years, like they will have absolutely zero, they won't even be in your consciousness. So why am I feeling stressed now? Like, I don't need to feel stress. Like, I won't even remember this. Like, it's not a big deal. And even the big ones, like the big ones, it fades. Like after a few months, after six months, even a big stressful event won't mean that much. And you'll see that if you look back in your life, you've had so many of these events you thought were kind of the end of the world or that were so important that actually didn't matter that much. <laughs> they weren't nearly as important as your, you know, you, we tend to That's inflate so things in our mind. You know, when, when those, when, when, when our, uh, when our blood is pumping, the adrenaline's going, we're, we're feeling all this pressure. We are creating those into much bigger situations. So nipping it in the bud is the key before it, it get it, it consumes you. Absolutely. You know, I, I had to navigate through stress myself and, and try to learn how do I manage things and, and look at them a little more objectively. And I, I love everything that you've, you've said about it. And for me, something that always helped is recognizing that, uh, you know, I'm somebody that I, I really appreciate getting to tap into my creative side. And every time a problem like this arises, that's like the ultimate opportunity to be creative. And, uh, the ultimate opportunity, you know, like it's a challenge. Yeah. It, you should take all of these things that could be negative as challenges. Now, let's see if I can solve it's this kind of, problem. It's kind of fun <laughs> when you look at it the right way and, 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 and you know, right. in a way, you know, um, <laughs> it is like even if your business is on the line and you're about to go under, let's see if I can pull this off yeah. like this crazy thing. Like I need a loan in the next three days or we're going down and <laughs> and I've been there. But let's see what I could do. Yeah, and, it's, and, and, yeah. you, and you have to tell yourself if I can't do it, I can't do it. Like it's just that's the way it is. And I like to think of my life as a story. So all these things things are great chapters in the story of your life. Like however they work out. In fact, great stories, things don't go smoothly. The stories we love, the hero or heroine is always in a predicament that seems impossible. And a lot of times they get beaten down to the ground. This is your life. So look at it like you are a character in your own story. And these dramatic events are just making it more fun. Absolutely right. Uh, and yeah, I, I love that you share that, share that philosophy. And, you know, something that I feel is tied up in all of this is in order to get somewhere, you always have to take a few risks. I, I feel like risk is, is really essential to push your comfort zone. It's built into the equation of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. So 
If you're going to try to extract risk, minimize risk, you're minimizing opportunity. You have to remember that. Like I'm minimizing risk, I'm minimizing opportunity. It doesn't mean do stupid things, like of course, but you're just, you know, there's fundamental risk in trying anything new. And, and there's fundamental risk in going out there and starting a new business, Absolutely. You know, working with new people, learning a new industry, all of that. And that's also the fun. That's why we do it. We love it. <laughs> so we got to take the risk with that. Absolutely. And you've also done so many different speaking engagements. I was actually, uh, I was on YouTube and I saw uh, your, your TED talk and I was like, oh, yes. oh my gosh, this is a little out of left field, but uh, yeah, tell me, tell me a little, I, I just thought it was fascinating. Uh the, oh, the brain well, chips. If people want it. <laughs> yeah, if just go to founderspace.com and you can click on the the video. They have lots of videos there, but the one on brain chips, that uh, yes, that was one of my TED Talks because I'm fascinated with the technology. So I'm fascinated with brain computer interfaces, how they're totally literally we are we're not there yet. It's still in the future. But at some point in time, Instead, phones are very clunky, yeah. right? We carry them around and tapping on them is very slow. Takes a lot of time to input information into the, even talking to them is slow. Imagine the next big leap is we don't have a phone between us and the internet. Literally the internet is connected into our head. Like we wow. will have, it might it's be crazy a brain about more than like, it? more than likely for most people, it's going to be a non-invasive invasive device. It's going to be a headband. Well, the simple headband yeah. or something you put behind your ear, literally built into your, you know, whatever listening device sure. you're using, you know, Bluetooth headset, whatever it is, earbuds, it'll be built into that. It'll, it will read your brainwaves. And this device will literally, the one who develops this device and more importantly, develops the operating system for this device, that will be the next Windows, iOS, Android, right? It will be the, the first one to develop a brain OS will will rule the world because they will sure. literally control the interface between all of our minds and the internet and then the power out there um and i won't go into it all because it's a long time yes yes <laughs> but the power out there once we connect our brains to the internet once we can actually exchange information once we can exchange ideas all of this will completely transform not just how we live our lives and do our business but how we think of being human what is it to be human when you can suddenly get inside somebody else's head, potentially access their memories, exchange memories, exchange emotions? What does it mean to be a human being? To me, that, that, that fascinates That's me. That's incredibly fascinating. And, you know, watching that TED Talk, I was like, one thing I noticed is it's back in 2017. So I can't imagine the strides that we've made since then, too, you know? Yes. Well, it's been harder than a lot of people thought. So... A lot of uh, people like Elon Musk is trying with his Neuralink and there's Kernel and a whole bunch of other. It's, you know, doing it. We're making huge progress. Uh, and, and I put a lot of this into my book, The Five Forces. I have a whole section on brain computer interfaces and the, the, current, uh, the current state of the R&D in that area. Yeah. But it's amazing. What we can do now is literally, if we get a chip in somebody's brain and we're doing this, we're chipping people who have, uh, who are basically, they've had a stroke and they're disabled. So having a chip in their brain, you know, they're completely paralyzed, helps them. They can actually communicate through the brain chip to people on the internet, literally talking. They can do that now. We can do that. They can drive themselves around in a wheelchair. They can turn off and off lights. They can control an iPad, can do all of this with a brain chip. So the technology works. The question is, how do we make it easy and safe enough for the average person mm, to adopt? Absolutely. 
I love that there's so many things that you've made clear are uh, a direct inspiration to you, you know, and, and drive you down a path of, you know, full curiosity, finding out more and more and more. Uh, what are some of the things that you think are inspiring you right now in, uh, in what you're doing? So, so many areas that yeah. I'm interested in. So uh, another one is gene editing technology. Absolutely fascinating technology. Uh, you, you think of it, we have decoded the source code of life, not human life, all life, like literally how we create any species of plants and animals. We can do this with CRISPR, gene editing technology. We now have the, the ability to create new species of plants and animals that never existed. And we're doing that. That's like unreal. We, there's, there, the, you can, and the five forces, I talk about the geep, the geep. What is a geep? It's a cross between a goat and a <laughs> sheep. It exists now. It, these are hybrid creatures where we took genes from two different things. We combine them. And it's literally a goat and a sheep. It's half goat, half sheep. We can create uh, chimeras, they're called a yes, Greek mythology, yeah. of animals with uh, with genes from other animals. We could actually put, like, I don't know if you've seen the old film, Dr. Moreau's Island, the I, island I of Dr. Moreau. That, but, but, okay, it's a classic film. And it's, and it's an H.G. Wells story, actually, before that. Um, but basically, he imagined, what if we created a new species of, of, of animal? What if we combined human genes and ape genes and other genes? We are actually doing that now in the lab. It's really scary. But this is going on around the world. People are experimenting it with, what if we took human genes and actually put them in a monkey? You know, what would change in the monkey's brain? All of these things... We, we have the ability, we're going to have to genetically modify ourselves if we're going to actually have a decent life in outer space because our bodies were built for, for Earth. Yes. They were not built to live on Mars. They were not built to live on the moon over long periods of time. It's really bad. So we're going to have to do this. We also have huge potential with gene editing to literally eliminate every disease. They're using gene therapies now to eliminate cancer and all these diseases, extend lifespan uh, to... Uh, potentially make us more intelligent. Wow. You know, things like that. Make, it's, it, you, there is a whole new horizon out there. And all the plants we eat and stuff like that. I was in Chile giving a talk in Chile for this big malt. They make a lot of the fruit shipped to America, sure. especially during winter because it's summer there. So the biggest fruit company in Chile, they're working on gene technologies now. And their head scientist was talking to me and saying, look, you know, we can make berries so that they can be transported more easily. You know, berries crush, yes. right? Over long distances and still remain fresh. We can also cross like a raspberry with a blueberry or raspberry with an apple. How would you like apples that taste like raspberry? Like oh my these that, that would be amazing. <laughs> they can, we can, or a banana that, that, that tastes like a strawberry, yes. strawberry banana. Yeah. Like it tastes like a banana and a strawberry. You know, we can, people haven't started doing it yet because it's kind of freaky and weird, but it's also kind of wonderful. Like if yes. we create these new, um, enhance the flavor of fruits and vegetables and create new varieties. We've been doing it through selective breeding for, for centuries, sure. human beings, but we can now use this more precise technology to do things that we could only dream of. And so there's so many things in this area that I'm super excited wow. about. That's, uh, that's really incredible. I actually just listened to a podcast about um, gene editing and everything that goes into it and the capacity for us to even remove pain from our lives and things like that. And, yes. and 
remove, and especially yeah. people with chronic pain, like people with chronic pain now, you know, they're on drugs and we all know Oxycontin, what that does Absolutely. to people, turns them into heroin addicts. You know, are there other ways of solving these problems? Yes. You know, pain exists for a reason. Like most pain, we need sure, pain sure. because we would damage ourselves and not <laughs> know it. So pain is there, but you know, people with chronic pains and things like that, uh, we can do that. You know, in Florida, at the University of Florida, they are actually making cows, cattle that are heat resistant through altering their genes. So climate change, yeah. right? you know, places in the world are heating up. The cattle are dying. Well, what if we made cattle so they could ex survive extreme heat? What if we in a, another company called Aqua Bounty has just gene edited salmon? Why would you gene edit salmon? Well, they can make it grow twice as fast. Wow twice as fast, <laughs> which means twice as many salmon, yes. bigger profitability. Yes. Uh, so you can imagine, and that's commercially available now in Canada and the United States. So you may be eating gene-edited food. You don't even know it. There are cattle ranchers now that are cloning prime cattle, prime beef cattle. Now it's still too expensive cloning to be worth the money to make it a big industry, sure. but they can do it and they can sell it. All of these things are out there. Golly, I, yeah, I, I love how you're, you're able to like, just stay so tapped into all of these things. Uh, you know, it, I'm, I'm like that too, in the sense that well, it fascinates me and uh, people like you, I think we love it, yeah. right? We want to know how the world is changing. We can imagine our future, but the more we know about this, the better we are, we can imagine what, what our lives will be like 20, 30, 50 years. From Absolutely. Now. You know, I think growing up, something that I, I learned about myself was that I was always very novelty brained and I kind of thought that was a, a weakness of mine is that I would obsess over something for extended periods of time. It didn't matter if it was bearded dragons or Russian scooters. <laughs> uh, I would, I would only think about that and talk about that for an extended amount of time. And uh, now I've seen that, you know, everything bleeds into everything and having passions in all these different areas ends up, you know, abstractly impacting exactly what you're doing now too, you know? Right. And if you look at what humans are really good at, it's that. So we can get machines to do all the routine work. All that routine work is going away with AI and everything sure. like that. But uh, the ability to combine things in unique ways, to see opportunities, to imagine uh, different scenarios and model different futures in our head, uh, that's a very human trait. And it's not that computers can't do it or can't enhance our ability to do that, but that's where the greatest demand for people in the future is going to be people with brains. Absolutely like agree. Steve, uh, in closing, I always like to ask uh, two quick things. Uh, what would a little bit of advice be that you might give somebody that wants to go down a similar road as you, uh, and then what's your favorite thing that you're doing right now? And then also kind of a last thing is just please shout out anywhere that, uh, that people can find you and see what you're up to. So my biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid to try new things. Trying new things is it's, it opens up doors you would never expect. So even if it's a risk to quit your job, to try some crazy thing, you can look at my thing. I've had more careers than cats have had lives. Like I've tried <laughs> all these different careers and a lot of them didn't work out, but it led me to where I am today. I encourage you to do that. Number two, uh, well, if people want to find me, I'm super easy to find. You can simply go uh, to founderspace.com, founderspace.com. Uh, you can contact me. Contact form is there. Tons of videos, tons of material. My books are there. And you can also find me across the internet. I'm on every social network. My nickname is Captain Hoff or Steve Hoffman or search for Founderspace. A great place to reach out to me is LinkedIn. Wonderful.
Steve, thank you so, so much for hopping on. This was great. I really love getting to learn a little bit more about you. And our audience has so many uh, just tangible uh, things that they're going to be able to take from this and, and, and just, you know, put into action. So thank you for, for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Blake. It was, it was wonderful. Pleasure. All right, everybody. This is the Gem Series. Uh, hope everybody is having a wonderful day and talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Gem Series, the podcast for anybody dedicated to investing in themselves. If you'd like to see the resources mentioned in this episode, learn more about what we are up to at Rocket Level, or come over and join our team, just click on the links below. Until next time, this is Blake Chapman, and remember to be awesome and do awesome things.